Welcome to the Walking Lessons Podcast. In today's episode, Nate concludes his walk through the 12 steps with steps 10, 11, and 12, the maintenance steps. And now, here's Nate Larkin. Okay, we're going to conclude then our study of the 12 steps by moving quickly through what are sometimes called the maintenance steps, often called the maintenance steps, steps 10, 11, and 12. Step 10 goes like this. It's very simple. It says, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I don't know about you, but I'm not especially uh, strong on maintenance. The last uh, couple of weeks ago, I uh, started listening again to a book called Younger Next Year. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's written specifically for guys in my age category. I mean, it opens up, hey, you're 58 years old. And I'm, yeah, I am. I'm 58 years old. It's a book co-written by uh, two guys, uh, a retired trial attorney and a medical doctor, a gerontologist. And uh, the point they endeavor to make throughout the course of the book is that if you will commit yourself to some daily maintenance, it's possible, and actually it's kind of rigorous what they suggest that you do. I mean, an hour of exercise every day, six days a week from now until the day you die. Um, some sensible diet instruction, basically all boils down to stop eating crap. Uh, <laughs> a serious effort to rid your life of unnecessary stress, and then the connection, social connection with other people and a commitment to a life of purpose. And they show through scientific studies and a, a lot of theorizing around uh, evolutionary biology, which, by the way, I find very humorous because God's nowhere mentioned. It's all evolutionary biology, but they use the language of design and creation all. You know, this, is how you, this is how nature designed you. Okay, that's fine. But their premise is that if you'll just do this, it's possible, barring disease, or accident, which you know nobody can predict or you know reliably prevent. It, barring those, you should be able to maintain your uh, physical stamina, mental alertness on into your 70s, 80s, 90s. Now I have a renewed interest in this book. I actually read it four years ago, and I was so inspired by it that I went out and I bought a whole fitness kit uh, with a heart monitor and uh, a pedometer and some other equipment. I never figured out how to make the heart monitor work. I couldn't strap and I eventually sold it at a yard sale. <laughs> I did briefly show up at the gym again. Early in recovery, um, I went to the gym every day. For several years, went to the gym, at least Monday through Friday every day, and they knew me there. So Carolyn, who works the desk, was a little surprised when I walked in after a you know, multi-year absence. But she knew my name right away. Hello, Nathan. You know, she kind of acted as if I was just in again. Uh, she was very nice about it. And I did go to the gym regularly for, I think, two or three weeks. And then I uh, kind of fell out of that habit. This is not a book that I would have had any interest in when I was 30. I would have had only perhaps passing interest in when I was 40. But now that I'm about to turn 59, you know, on the same week that my brother 
four years younger than I, suffered a stroke, and my uh, wife went in for heart surgery, I developed a renewed interest in this book. So once again, I'm reading the book and going to the gym, and I saw Carolyn again this week, and she was very nice. Hello, Nathan. You know, She didn't say, where have you been for the last four years? It's nice to see you. Uh, the challenge now is for me to build the routines uh, that will allow me to maintain decent health. And I've noticed that I really have kind of let things slide, you know, health-wise. I kind of avoid the bathroom scale. It's amazing what I will allow myself to eat, especially on the road, when all the normal rules of diet seem to go away. But, you know, catching myself in the mirror and then stepping on that unfamiliar scale reminded me that I've been neglecting maintenance. I don't know how you are about maintenance. Wouldn't it be nice if you could vacuum your house once and for all? <laughs> wouldn't it be great if you, wouldn't it be awesome if you could like dust your house and it would stay dusted? Or if you could mow annually, if somebody could come up with the maintenance-free you know, yard. I'm thinking about the whole rock thing. That seems pretty good, just, right? Uh, it's clear to me, some people learned very early on, and their life uh, has shown the benefit of having learned maintenance. I'm 50, almost 59 years old, still learning that if I will take a little time every day to straighten up my office and straighten up my bedroom, and if I'll clean the kitchen before I leave it, that I can think more clearly. Life operates a whole lot more smoothly. But if I will ignore maintenance, even for a couple of weeks, piles begin to accumulate on my desk. Uh, I'm maneuvering around other uh, uh, accumulations of debris in the bedroom, right? And now it's real work to whip it back, back into shape. And in the meantime, I am paying a price every day, whether I'm aware of it or not. And the price of maintenance is actually lower if I'm willing to pay it every day. Well, that certainly holds true in recovery, which is not something I wanted to hear when I first got into recovery. And it's still, for some people, a knock on recovery. What do you mean you're going to still go to meetings? You got into recovery, what, 15 years ago? Why would you still go to a meeting? It didn't fix you, it didn't work. A lot of folks who, when they hit that life crisis, they'll go into rehab, they'll work real hard, they'll, they'll do those steps right up through step nine, and then figure they're done. Because life does get a whole lot better when you do the steps. It's a lot like cleaning the house, cleaning the office, mowing the lawn. It really feels great, doesn't it, to have every, we've got company coming this week, so we've got a full court press on to get the house in good shape. And it really feels nice to walk into the house right now. Just about as nice as it feels coming home from rehab, having done all the work. And then the question is, are you going to devote the effort every day to keep it in that shape, or are you going to let it go to hell again? That's really what this is about. It's about uh, steps 10, 11, and 12 are about maintenance. Life gets really good, but it won't stay that way if you ignore it you'll drift. One of the, point the guy, uh, points the guys make in this book, 
uh, younger next year, they talk an awful lot about the biology of aging, explaining really what goes on on a molecular level as we grow older. And it's as though there is kind of this steady tide drawing us out to sea as we get older. And, and actually, our body has been renewing itself since we were born. And we've always been killing off cells and replacing them. But the ratio of demolition cells to building cells changes as we grow older, unless we take active steps to keep them in balance. So as we get older, uh, if we go sedentary, our body starts to decide, well, you really don't need those muscles, and you really don't need bones that strong, and you really don't need to exercise your brain that much. And if we just relax and go with the flow, our body just over time just kind of packs up and leaves. Uh, but a way to hold, uh, to, to slow that process is to remind ourselves, to remind our body through action every day, that you know what, I still actually do need these bones. And I do need these muscles. And I do need this brain. And that requires me to work a little every day to do things that I, by the way, despise. I have a son, I have a son now, almost 50. That's a, a stepson, admittedly. He's uh, 47 years old now. And within the last three or four years, he's really gotten into weightlifting, which I don't get. I absolutely don't get it. Uh, he loves to go to, the, he's put on 35 pounds of muscle. He feels great about himself. He loves to go and just lift those heavy things. I don't get it at all. I don't like work, and I don't like working out. I like to play. But actually, this week, I actually did a little, voluntarily, a little bit of resistance training, if only to tell my body that, yeah, you know what? I still do need these muscles, and I still do need these bones. So don't pack them, and don't mail them away yet. OK. Uh, so we're on the, so that's the track we're on, maintenance. So how do we maintain if, by the grace of God, we we have this collision with our own depravity. We come to terms with our own weakness. We throw ourselves upon the mercy of a loving God and admit that we need a savior. We then are saved and we experience, this is not, well, I'm not talking now about a future salvation. I'm talking about a present salvation from the mess of life. And we're brought back to gospel sanity and uh, to reconnection with ourselves and with others and with God. Now, how do we keep that? You know, the Bible has a lot to say about this continuing thing. This is the first, the first word in step 10 is continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, properly admitted it. Continued. That's a word that shows up in the New Testament a lot. For example, here, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then here's the next phrase, which is my salvation. For it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. Or this one, Colossians chapter 2. Verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, 
strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Uh, or this one, uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. We have to make the decision and we have to make it daily. And I think, uh, I don't know about you, I don't have the resources, personal resources, to keep up a commitment like this, a long-term commitment on my own. Eventually, fear, fatigue, adversity are going to wear me down. I will run out of my own resources and I will give up. What keeps me going is the same thing that kept me going as a college kid when I climbed Kilimanjaro. I never would have made it to the top of Kilimanjaro on my own. Never. But I went with 15 other people. And uh, those last thousand feet were just brutal and I was freezing to death and I would, have, I would have turned back and gone home. I was ready to quit. Now I had actually helped a couple other guys keep going early on. And I was one of those guys took his coat off and put it around me and said, come on, Nate, you can make it, you can make it. And I was able to continue to the top. So continuing is something that we do together, but at the same time, it's a commitment that each of us has to make on our own. He says, continue to take personal inventory. Those of you who were here remember that we went through the fearless moral inventory. We took some time, several weeks doing that in step four. And that really is where we turn the corner in recovery. That really is the hard work with a big payoff. But we make a mistake if we think that that inventory taking is something that's done once and for all. If you owned a retail business and you only took inventory once, you wouldn't stay in business very long, right? Because things change. Goods are broken, goods are stolen, uh, you lose track of what's sold and what isn't. Before you know it, you don't know what's on the shelves, and uh, you're ordering what you don't need and not ordering what you do need, and you're in trouble. Same thing is true in life. We have to continue to take inventory. In a lot of ways, it's, it's analogous to just daily stepping on the bathroom scale and looking in the mirror. Okay. <laughs> How am I doing? How does it look today? Here are some suggestions uh, for daily inventory. Three questions to ask yourself. The first thing is, how am I doing in regard to my needs? My needs. This may sound like a selfish question, but it isn't a selfish question at all. Part of being human is we have needs. God has no needs. You know that. God is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need us, he loves us. Whenever I tr begin to imagine once again that I am like the Most High, when I try to be God, I stop monitoring my own needs and I start to imagine that I don't have any. But the truth is I have basic, very basic needs. I have a need, for example, for uh, sleep, for rest. I cannot operate 24-7. I need at least six hours sleep, and I actually can't function very long on only six hours sleep. I need more. 
But if I'm not paying attention, here's what'll happen to me. All my other priorities will crowd in and I'll start to imagine that I can function without sleep. And if I function too long without sleep, I go crazy. And I'm at grave risk of falling back, by the way, into addictive behavior, which I used to choose over sleep. I did that for many years. So I need rest. I need, to, I need nourishment. I need to eat. I need good nourishment. When I start to uh, think that I'm God, I don't know about you, but here's what I'll do. I'll, I will start to skip meals and then make it up with terrible meals. So I'll blow out of the house in the morning without having breakfast. Just try to live on coffee till one or two o'clock in the afternoon. By which time, try to say no to a hamburger and fries. It doesn't happen. And then I'll start to imagine, you know what, I'm kind of immortal and I can eat whatever I want and somehow turn it into healthy stuff, right? No, I, I do need regular healthy nutrition It's part of being human. Am I paying attention to that? Or am I starting to function as though I don't need it? These are real, real basic things. You know what I also need? I need human interaction. I really do. I need to have close emotional contact with other people. I need an emotional and physical connection with my wife. I need real honest intimacy with other people. It's part of being healthy and human. It's part of maintaining my balance. But it's very easy for me when life gets crazy and I got so much work to do and uh, everything else just kind of slides up the priority scale. I somehow think if I just retreat from society and focus on tasks and just write that book and finish that report and, and I don't take care of that need for human connection, I can go crazy. So it's no accident that I had a nice relapse right after I retreated from society in order to finish Samson and the Pirate Monks. I'm kind of, I, and I'm very aware right now, I'm grateful to be aware of my vulnerability right now because uh, I got a lot of uh, demands right now, the business is going crazy, a lot of ministry stuff coming up. I have overbooked some ministry stuff in the fall and it's gonna take real work for me to pay attention to those needs and make sure that they're getting met. And that requires me to remember every day that I'm human and I'm fragile and I need care. Okay, the second thing to kind of inventory, and this is where our daily phone call that I've talked with you about comes in, at least for me, so much into play. It's important for me to inventory every day what I'm feeling what I'm feeling. I would like to imagine that I'm a purely rational being, uh, that I can live out of my head and I will make sensible decisions and live a sane life. And it's easy to think that when you're a Presbyterian because we Presbyterians are thinkers and we would love to be able to think our way to sanity. But it is a great peril anytime we ignore our emotions. Because as we've said before in this class, a person's life does not proceed out of his or her head, but out of 
It proceeds out of the heart, and emotions are the language of the heart, and it is the heart that drives us to do what we do. And then we dress it up later with a nice juicy rationalization, right? So in a tug of war between my head and my heart, if I have not listened to my heart, my, head, my heart will win. I don't need to be controlled by emotions, but I do at least need to acknowledge them. Or I will find myself, as I did for so many years, doing irrational things for non-rational reasons, trying foolishly to control the problem by rational means. So it's really important for me to know every day what I feel. And I've got to be willing to feel even those negative emotions, especially the negative emotions. Now, I would prefer just to run on joy, peace, and happiness all the time. And I've actually been part of churches, which kind of said that was my Christian obligation. That somehow to rejoice in the Lord means never to grieve. And that's not a biblical position. So sometimes what I really need to do is I need to acknowledge my own grief, my own sadness. There are times to weep. And if I am driven, if I'm experiencing a deep grief that I will not acknowledge, I'll begin to behave in crazy ways. I need to acknowledge my own uh, anger. I need to get comfortable with acknowledging that instinctive response to a blocked goal, that anger thing that we all have. That it's an attribute we share with God, our ability to get angry. But if I want to somehow be better than God and never be angry, if I'm not going to acknowledge that in times of frustration, uh, I'm getting this extra surge of energy. Uh, if I'm not willing to acknowledge it, then uh, that anger will come out misdirected, sideways, injuring me and injuring others. It could go into depression. It could very well go into resentment, this poison miasma of resentment that seeps through my life and through my relationships. So I've got to be willing to feel hurt and sad and anger, as well as joyful and hopeful. So that's why in our daily phone calls in the Samson Society, we start that check-in when we leave a message to our Silas with how I'm feeling today. And for me, I've found that it's really helpful. Another reason to keep up the daily discipline of at least some journaling is I need to put my heart on paper, give my heart a chance to talk and take a look at how I'm really feeling. That's part of my daily inventory. Because uh, if I run in eyes closed, in denial of, of what my heart really wants and what it's really pressing for, I'll start running into trees, I'll start running into people, and before you know it, I'm running off a cliff someplace. So, I need to inventory my needs, I need to inventory my feelings, and finally, I want to inventory my behaviors. In other words, I need to take an honest look, and I, frankly, I need help from other people with this, and Allie is a good, faithful ally. Because she doesn't always know what I'm thinking, and she doesn't know what I'm feeling, uh, but she can see what I'm doing. And she's pretty good these days at kind of spotting red flags. And thankfully, I'm a place, in a place most of the time where I'm at least willing to get some input. That's one of the big changes in recovery. I used to not want any critique of my behavior because I was in such self-justifying mode that I couldn't abide the possibility that I might be doing something less than divine and perfect 
So I'd retaliate uh, anytime Ali suggested that my behavior was maybe counterproductive. But the Lord will actually show this to me. And this isn't, by the way, another good reason to come to church or to go to meetings. I love and hate coming to church because I'll sit in the service and when the message comes, David will ask questions that I've been avoiding. He'll raise issues that I haven't thought about, right? He's helping me with my inventory. And we all need that help. So the questions, I need to look at my behaviors on a daily basis and say, what am I doing in a, uh, in a covert or a codependent or a, uh, a counterfeit way to meet my own needs? Am I being over-controlling just because I'm trying to control other people because I think that'll control my world? Am I being manipulative rather than just saying what I need and what I want and what I feel? Am I somehow trying to maneuver people to get what I want? That doesn't work out well long. Am I being perfectionistic with myself or uh, with other people in a way that comes out hypercritical and works against the grace and the patience of God? Am I rescuing others or enabling others in a way that actually weakens them and uh, takes them out of the struggle that they need in order to grow? Am I doing that to meet some need to make myself more significant or necessary? By the way, I do that a lot. I'm doing it less now because I'm at least periodically asking the question and Ali is asking me, asking the question of me. But it's important that we be willing still to ask those questions as part of daily inventory, or continuing inventory anyway. And then the second half of this step is, so uh, we continue to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. I love the language. Notice it doesn't say, continue to take personal inventory, and if we were wrong, promptly admitted it. The assumption is, we're going to be wrong. And that's a great assumption to begin to operate under. I love to hear a preacher say before the sermon, some of what I'm going to tell you is wrong. I've heard Scotty say this. I just don't know what. So I'm going to tell it to you as best I can, and then we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit leads us together into all truth. That, for me, was a, was a, a ground-shifting move. Uh, for years, I operated under the assumption that I was probably right. That's self-justifying mode, right? If I don't need a savior, and if I haven't come to grips with my own brokenness and depravity, if I haven't been brought to that point of poverty and surrender that David talked about this morning, this I have nothing to give, then it's going to be very hard for us to even hear the suggestion that we might be wrong. If I'm self-justifying and I'm wrong, then suddenly I'm not just anymore. I'm not justified. I'm in deep trouble. This is where I think recovery really helps us to be Christians. As Christians, we have given up self-justification completely. Our justification now is a gift. It is 
an imputed justification. It's a foreign righteousness. It's an alien righteousness that comes to somebody else is just for us. And we never have to justify ourselves or our actions again. Never. What a huge relief. But my old habits of self-justification don't automatically go away. It's a wonderful thing. G.K. Chesterton had a standard reply that he used to mail whenever he got uh, you know, a critical, angry letter over something he'd written. And his response was, dear so-and-so, you may be right. That's a beautiful attitude to take. And especially if it's not just a maneuver. If I actually can think, and, and sometimes I still, you know, when, when I'm corrected by my spouse or, or by a Silas or even by one of my neighbors or one of my kids who suggested that I'm not seeing things the way they really are, I'm not doing things the way they ought to be done. More than just saying, you know what, you may be right, to stop and think, what if they are right? You know, I know I'm not all right. There's something in what they're saying, and maybe it's a big something. That can be a, a life-saving insight if we'll just open ourselves enough to receive it. That's part of what we do in, uh, in step 10. So it's a commitment to uh, being quick repenters, to use that language of Christ's community, always eager and willing to repent, operating under the assumption that I am justified by another and there's a very good chance that some of what I'm doing or what I'm saying right now is wrong. Um, I don't have a monopoly on truth. There are actually other angles on truth that I can't see because of where I'm standing. I'll tell you what, it makes us easier to be around. It makes us less combative on Facebook and in social situations, right? And we're not always quick to arms when somebody uh, states, uh, uh, contradicts something we say or makes a statement that seems to be in opposition of something we hold. We don't, it, it's, a, it's a marvelous thing to be relieved of that need always to be right. Uh, but there's a certain satisfaction that comes with the knowledge, this thought, this belief that we're right, and that's a hard drug to quit. Okay, so that's step 10. Step 11 is sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God asking only for His will for us, to know His will for us and the power, uh, let me see, the, the language is asking only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. So we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, asking only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. This too is something that requires us to continue, and it's another reason, by the way, to get together, not to neglect, as the New Testament says, the assembling of ourselves together, in order to keep these embers of faith burning. It is faith building for me to be in the community of faith. When I neglect assembling with my brothers and sisters, it's easy for that old thinking that uh, Pastor talked about this morning uh, to begin to reassert itself. Oh, I got this. And I can lose conscious contact with God. I don't ever lose contact with God because um, He maintains that. In Him we live and move and have our being.
and He is always present. But I can so easily lose conscious contact with God and begin once again to try to operate uh, solely on my own. This is where the, uh, the daily disciplines of, of, of prayer and meditation come into play. And uh, that's where uh, we've got a pretty big audience uh, on the internet listening to these podcasts, which I'm grateful for. I'm just sad that they don't, you know, they're kind of hearing the second part of the message because they don't hear the sermon unless they come and to the uh, Christ Community website and uh, start to download the messages there. They'll hear me referring to the first part of the message, which comes from the pastor uh, during the first hour of church. Today, that sermon was on Teach Us to Pray. And uh, David acknowledged that this is not an easy or natural thing to do. It certainly isn't for me. I have found that structure helps. I think that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the explanations for the remarkable continuing piety within the Muslim community as they've structured these prayer times five times a day where whether you feel like it or not, and it's part of peer pressure, you're going to stop what you're doing, you're going to unroll the rug, you're going to face Mecca, you're going to say the prayers. There is some something to be said for structure. And then setting aside time as well to listen. I don't know how you pray and I'm not going to tell you how to pray and I'm, I'm looking forward to the series that our pastor began uh, this Sunday to help me learn to pray better. I will tell you that I tend these days to pray best with a pen in my hand. And my journal turns out to be a prayer journal. Uh, it helps to keep me on track, keep the mind from wandering, and I can actually carry on a conversation at least half a page before it degenerates into a to-do list or something. But this is something that requires continued work. Otherwise, what will happen it's, is we'll have these moments, and it comes at times of crisis, where suddenly we're brought face to face with our desperate need for God. And by His grace, you know, He touches us. And we have that oxygen just pumped into the flame, and it flares again, and it's warm, and it's bright, and it's wonderful, and it's beautiful. But if we don't tend it, uh, it can flicker, and we can find ourselves moving away from what is the only source of, of heat, power, and light for this life. And step 12, finally, is this. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. This is uh, the principle of service. Here's what I've learned in recovery. If I want to keep what I have, I've got to give it away. I have to give it away every day. To be honest, it's the main reason that I uh, do what I do in ministry. It's the main reason I teach this class. It's the main reason that I take phone calls every day and that I go for walks with guys every day. It's the, it's the main reason I get on airplanes and go and talk. It isn't, and, and people will thank me as though, you know, I've done them a huge favor by going for a walk and having an honest conversation. What I try to convey to my friends is, I, I, I do love them, and in a way, I mean, it is a, a gift of service, but I get more than I give from those conversations. And the, the main reason I do it is because it's by giving it away that I get to keep it. I love working with 
people brand new to recovery. I love getting the emergency desperate phone call. Can you meet with so-and-so? I'll tell you why I love to do it, because I've got this great forgetter. I've been in recovery now 17 years, and life has gotten really good. But, you know, that old saying is true, that no matter how far down the road of recovery I go, I'm always the same distance from the ditch. And if I forget the insanity, the pain, the desperation, the loneliness, the waste, if I forget it, and, and I'm so prone to forgetting it, I can be induced back toward the ditch again to start flirting with behaviors that will lead me in that direction. And the best way for me to remember is to have a conversation with a guy who just got hit by the train. Helps me remember the train. I love helping people through the steps. You know why? Because in talking to them, I find I'm talking to myself. I have to remind myself all the time of the basic principles of recovery. The stuff I've forgotten to do, doggone it. That's why this class has been really good for me this week. Because I forget about maintenance. I do want to cruise. And um, unless I'm giving to others and helping others, I'll find myself, you know, drifting down the beach out of sight and God forbid, may be caught in a riptide someday. So there it is. Those are the maintenance steps. And I, I, I do hope that this little trip through the 12 steps, whether you consider yourself an addict or not, if you're not an addict, I'm sure you know addicts. Um, I hope this has been helpful and enriching. And we'll kind of look at these same issues starting next week when we begin the book of James. If, this, if we've been talking about walking lessons, uh, for Christians who sometimes fall down. The book of James is really about keeping your balance in tumultuous times. Uh, and I think you're going to find it fascinating. We're going to look at the book in its historical context. Uh, what was actually going on in the world of Jerusalem and Judea and the whole eastern Mediterranean at the time the book of James was written? I think you're going to find it was a lot like our day. Uh, in some ways, their trials were even more extreme than ours. And it's going to be instructive, I think inspiring. And I'm looking forward to that study. We'll start that next week. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Walking Lessons Podcast. We want to hear from you. Please email your comment or question about today's lesson to walkinglessons at gmail.com or join the Walking Lessons page on Facebook. We'll see you next week.